Good morning, church. As always, I love and appreciate all of you so very much. Whether you're watching online or you're here with us in the auditorium, we love and appreciate every single one of you. I am so thankful for you allowing God to use you in whatever ways he is using you, for being the people that you are individually and as families and collectively as a church body, being salt and light in this community. I, I stumbled on a, a TED Talk uh, this week. Uh, the woman's name was Margaret Heffernan. I don't know anything about her, but she told this story that I thought was fascinating about this researcher, this biologist that was researching the productivity of chickens. I know it sounds like a truly interesting story, doesn't it? He was studying the productivity of chickens. His name was William Muir. And William Muir, he was trying to figure out what would make the most productive chicken flock, right? And productivity amongst chickens is pretty easy to measure, right? You just count eggs, right? And so he counted eggs, and, and he what he did was he had two groups. One was sort of a control group that was just a normal flock of hens, and he sort of left that one alone for six generations as they continued to, to produce, and he just let them be what they would be normally. And then he created a second group of super chickens, he, he took the most productive chickens, and then every generation, only the most productive of the most productive were allowed to breed. And so this was a, a flock of super chickens, the most productive of the most productive of the most productive. And, and over the generations, after six generations, he, he measured the first group. And the first group was actually doing really well. They were really healthy. This was the normal chicken flock. And this group of chickens were healthy, plump, had feathers. In fact, their egg production was increased over what it had been. And the, the flock of super chickens, the super flock of super chickens, the most productive of the most productive, you want to take a guess what happened to them? All but three of them were dead. They pecked each other to death. And that actually makes sense. I looked up this week, I didn't realize this, that we even use the phrase pecking order. We've heard that phrase pecking order to talk about a hierarchy in different cultures and different groups and different societies. We talk about a pecking order. And that actually comes from what chickens do. They dominate one another and they have a hierarchy amongst themselves and they will peck those who are lower on the social ladder than them. And we use those types of phrases to apply to ourselves because we can see that amongst ourselves, can't we? That human beings can be just as competitive. We can put ourselves into a pecking order. In order to be the best, in order to dominate, in order to be superior, we will step on whoever is in our path. We, we, we call it a dog-eat-dog dog world, don't we? And we can all feel, we can all feel the results of that, can't we? Because so often, if we're honest in our life, we don't feel big enough or smart enough or strong enough or beautiful enough. We don't feel like we have enough money. We don't feel like we have enough stuff. Somebody is always trying to convince us that we have to be more and have more in order to be great. And in the process, in this pursuit of greatness, we bite and devour one another. We establish a 
pecking order. We live in a dog-eat-dog world. And Jesus wants to create a new culture with us. He wants to break us out of that rat race. He wants to break us out of that dog-eat-dog world. He wants to break us out of that pecking order. But in order to do that, here's what Jesus does. He redefines greatness. And the question that we're wrestling with this month in this series is, are we willing to accept Jesus' redefinition of what greatness really is? Are we going to continue to hold on to the dream and the ideas and the aspirations that the world tells us that we should have? Are we going to hold on to the world's definition of greatness? Or are we going to allow Jesus to reshape us, remold us, and redefine what greatness looks like amongst us? And it's so upside down. It's so different. It's so backwards from everything that the world teaches us. But... If, if we believe that the world Jesus stepped into was already upside down, was already broken, that their way of doing things was wrong, was backwards, was upside down, then of course Jesus' way would seem to be backwards and upside down. But in reality, it's really right side up, isn't it? This is the way things should be. And the way the unbelieving world teaches us to think about greatness, the things that we admire and the things to which we aspire, those are the things that are upside down and backwards. Look at Matthew chapter 16. This is where we're going to start. Again, several times in the gospel account of Matthew, as I read through the gospel account of Matthew, this really stood out to me. Jesus' emphasis on redefining greatness. Look at what he says in Matthew 16 verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, we just read that and we're so used to the story, right? We know where the story is going. We know what's going to happen. We know about Calvary. We know about Golgotha. We know about the scourging. We know about the crucifixion. We know about the tomb and we know that the tomb is empty. So we know the story and we know that that's what Jesus was going to do. But to be in the shoes of his first century followers and hear Jesus, the one you believe is the king of kings, the one you believe is the, the descendant of David, the one you believe is the one who's going to restore Israel, the one who you believe he's the king, he is God's anointed king and he's going to change everything. And now all of a sudden he's talking about going to Jerusalem to suffer and die? Die? How is that part of the plan? How is this your plan for victory? How is this your plan for success? How is this how you're going to achieve greatness? Look at verse 22. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's still looking at the situation with human eyes, with carnal eyes, with natural eyes. He's looking at the situation the way you and I tend to look at every situation. How is this victory? 
How is this success? How is this greatness? How does greatness and success and victory include surrender to death? How are you going to say this is your path to victory? This is your path to the throne. This is your path to greatness. This is your path to fulfilling all the promises that God has made to us. Why would it include suffering? Why would it include death? And Jesus says, you're not thinking like God. You're thinking like man. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, same context. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus doubles down on this, doesn't he? He, he? he doesn't just say, this is my path, this is my cross, this is the way I'm going to achieve victory and success and greatness. He says, no, if any of y'all want to keep following me, if you want to be on this path, then this is your path as well. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. You have to be willing to suffer and die. See, this is what Jesus says over and over and over again. In this upside-down world, Jesus' kingdom seems very upside-down, doesn't it? He says, in order to be first, you have to be last. In order to win, you have to lose. In order to be on top, you have to be trampled on. In order to live, you have to die. In order to succeed, you have to be defeated. This is the path to victory. This is the path to greatness. This is the path to success. This is the path to glory. You say, that doesn't sound like greatness to me. That doesn't sound like success to me. That doesn't sound like victory to me. And then Jesus would say to us, then you're still looking at it through human eyes. Because in the kingdom of God, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. That means in order to win, we have to lose. In order, this is what success looks like in the kingdom of God. It looks like willing to be last. And Jesus' promise is that the last will be first you got to stop playing their game. you got to stop chasing what they're chasing. you got to stop being who they want you to be. you you got to stop going after their definition of greatness. You have to stop going after their definition of success. This is what it looks like in the natural world. This is what it looks like in the unbelieving world. But amongst you, Jesus says, it has to be different. A couple chapters later, same idea, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17. I love this account. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. We already read that part, didn't we? I apologize. Oh, no, no, that's where we are. Verse 17, yes. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, 
and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Again, Jesus says over and over again, wanting them to understand the point, but I don't know that they ever really got it, and I don't know that we've ever really gotten it. In order to win, we have to lose. In order to succeed, we have to surrender. In order to live, we have to die. In order to be great, we have to be least. In order to be first, we have to be last. That's the way it has to work. And we're going to Jerusalem, and this is what is going to happen. And if you want to be my followers, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And as true as that was in the tree, Jesus says this over and over and over again. Verse 20, this is followed up directly with this account. Verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, so all three of them come up to Jesus, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Oh, Mrs. Zebedee. Oh, James and John, you still, don't, you still don't get it, do you? But I'm so thankful they didn't get it. Because for every one of them who didn't get it, there's 10 of us who still don't get it. We still don't get it. We're still pursuing the same sorts of things. We're still chasing the same sorts of success. We're still chasing the same sort of greatness. Now, Zebedee's family believed in Jesus, they believed in Jesus. They believed that he's the one. He's the Messiah. He's, he's the one who is going to usher in God's kingdom. He's the one through whom God is going to rule heaven and earth. And they were right. But they were wrong in what it was going to look like. Mrs. Zebedee, Zebedee's wife, James and John's mother, she, she wanted what, what all mothers want, right? But to sit at a better spot. I want my sons to have a better spot because if they have a better spot, that's, that's better for me. So I want them to get ahead. I want them to be at the top of the pecking order. If we don't take advantage of this right now, if we don't seize our opportunity, if we don't take what's ours, somebody else will. That competition, that dog-eat-dog, that pecking order that is so very much a part of our nature, not understanding that selfish ambition is at odds with kingdom participation. Selfish ambition is at odds with kingdom participation. It's just like what we talked about last week. Unless you're willing to humble yourself like a child, you won't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. This isn't, this isn't how the kingdom works. In earthly kingdoms, that's how it works. You step on other people, you peck those lower than you, you dog-eat-dog, dog, you bite and devour one another, you do whatever it takes to get ahead, to get one up on the competition, to keep moving up and up and up the ladder. That's the way it works with people that are operating in this upside-down, backwards world. But now that the kingdom of God is coming to reality, it must be different among you. Verse 22, he's really talking to the boys, right? To James and John. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup, the cup of suffering that I'm to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Eh, wrong answer, right? 
Wrong answer. No, anyone who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven doesn't answer, we're able. The fact that they said, we're able, it shows how right Jesus is when he says, you don't know what you're asking for. You, you don't know what it is that you're asking for. Are you able? And they said, yes. No, you're not able. People who are great in the kingdom of heaven don't say we're able. They don't say we're strong. They don't say we're smart. They don't say we're capable. They don't say we're powerful. They don't say we're beautiful. The kingdom of heaven people don't talk like that. The kingdom of heaven people are poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven people hunger and thirst for righteousness. The fact that they say we're able shows that they don't know what it is that they're asking for. But how often do we answer that way? Are you able? Oh, yes, I'm able. I'm strong. I'm good. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm whatever. No. Wrong. Wrong answer. He says in verse 23, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. James and John would eventually drink the cup of suffering. James, Acts chapter 12, was killed by Herod. John was probably persecuted for decades to come. But they had to learn a lot before they drank that cup of suffering. But they weren't the only ones. James and John weren't the only ones who needed to learn a lot before they drank the cup of suffering. Because it says in verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, Probably not. I, I wish it was like, oh, I can't believe you two asking for that. How unhumble of you. How prideful of you. That's probably not why they were indignant. It was more like, I wish we had thought of that, right? I, 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 I want that spot. I want the right-hand spot or the left-hand spot. I want the place of honor. I want the place of greatness. I want the place of superiority. Who do you think you are? I could do a better job in a higher place than you can. You say you're able, well, I'm more able. You say you're strong, well, I'm stronger. You say you're smart, well, I'm smarter. They were probably indignant because they would say, who do you think you are? Verse 25, but Jesus called to him, called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. The word Gentiles just means the nations. This, this is how it works in the nations. This is how it works in the world. Domination. To dominate and control and to manipulate and to lord it over and to exercise authority over. This is how kings and great ones, quote unquote, have always operated. And is that just a first century thing, or is that true in the 21st century as well? Was it true in the 20th century, in the 19th century, in the 18th, in the 17th, in the 16th? This is always the way the kingdoms of the world operate, trying to control and trying to dominate, trying to be in power. This is what human beings naturally do. This is what we do in our carnality. This is what we do in our flesh. See, that's why we said last week that a lot can be said about our values based on the people we admire and that to which we aspire. 
This is why I cringe. Church, this is why I cringe when I hear Christian people admiring the rulers and leaders and great ones of the world who lord it over, who dominate, who enslave. This is why I cringe when I see us aspiring to that sort of greatness. Jesus says, this is the way the Gentiles operate. This is the way the nations operate. This is the way their kings operate. But this isn't the way God's king is going to operate. And it's not the way God's people are going to operate. He says in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. One more time, just for emphasis. It shall not be so among you. We don't play that game. We don't play that game. We don't play that control game. We don't play that power game. We don't play that domination game. We don't play that game. Jesus says it cannot be this way amongst my followers. We don't try to rule over one another. We don't try to impose our will on one another. We don't try to manipulate and control one another. We don't view ourselves as being superior to others. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 12? He says, if you're going to outdo one another, here's how you outdo one another. Outdo one another in showing each other honor. That's how you outdo each other. You outdo each other by being outdone by each other. You outdo each other by showing honor to one another because we don't play the same game the world plays. And that's not just in, in church leadership. That's in every area in which we operate as followers of Jesus. Whether we're in this building, or we're at work, or we're at school, or we're in our neighborhoods, or we're in our families, in our families, we don't try to dominate and control and manipulate each other. We don't try to be great the way the world pursues greatness. He says, continuing on, verse 26, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think we have to acknowledge everything in the context, everything that's led up to this conversation that Jesus is having. When he talks about being a servant, he isn't just talking about the function of servant, he's talking about the status of servant. Do we see the distinction? Because we can convince ourselves, can't we? Even as we try to control and manipulate and have power and impose our will on someone else, we can try to convince ourselves when we're really just serving them. We're serving them by making them do what we want them to do. But that's really service, because we're really serving them. Jesus isn't just calling us to the function of servant. He's calling his followers to the status of servant. To be last. To lose in order to win, to die in order to live, to surrender to defeat in order to be victorious. the Son of Man, and I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And think about the, 
The beauty of that. Think about the impact of that. Think about the profundity of that. That God in flesh, the Messiah, the chosen one of God, came not forcing anyone to serve him. He could have, right? He could have. If anybody could ever have imposed their will on someone else, it was Jesus. He could have imposed his will on everyone, but he didn't. Rather, he served them. He became a servant. He emptied himself. He came not taking lives, but giving his life as a ransom for many. He came not exercising his power, but surrendering his power. This present world is and has always been controlled by the ambitious and those who rule over others and those who exercise authority over others. But Jesus is calling us right now to be part of the world to come. And the world to come will be inherited by the meek, the selfless, the gentle, the servants. The only the only way to win is to stop playing their game. The only way to win is to be willing to lose. The only way to live is to die. The only way to be successful is to be willing to be defeated. Greatness isn't found by pursuing it, but by pursuing Christ. Isn't that what he says? He says, this isn't the way to be great. This this operation of James and John and their mom coming to ask for seats of greatness, it makes sense. It's what we all do. It's what human beings have always done. They've always lorded it over. They've always exercised their authority. They've always tried to impose their will on each other. They've always been part of a pecking order of a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And Jesus says, that's not the way to greatness. Those who pursue greatness will never find it. They will only ever find death. You cannot find greatness by pursuing it. Greatness cannot be found by pursuing greatness. Greatness can only be found by pursuing Christ. And if you pursue Christ, you can find not only Christ, but also true greatness. Now, now make sure we understand what we're saying here. We're not saying, oh, well, I, I'll just outserve everybody else. I'll just outsacrifice everybody else. I'll just be more holy and more righteous and more pious. Nope, that's what the Pharisees did. They were pursuing greatness through religious means. That's a no-no as well. They were pursuing greatness. They were just using re religious means to get there. The Gentile world was pursuing greatness. They were just using other means, worldly means, secular means to get there. And we can fall into both of those traps. You cannot find greatness by pursuing it. You can only find greatness by pursuing Christ. Let's kind of talk about the practicalities of that. What does it look like pursuing greatness versus pursuing Christ? When we pursue greatness, we seek positions of superiority. But when we pursue Christ, we seek positions of service. When we pursue greatness, we see others competitively. When we pursue Christ, we see others compassionately. When we pursue greatness, we are slaves to the opinions of others. We always want to be honored and respected by other people. 
We're always concerned about what do they think about what I'm wearing? What do they think about how I look? What do they think about my strength? What do they think about my influence? What do they think about my knowledge? What do they think about this? And we're slaves to the opinions of others. But when we pursue Christ, we're satisfied with his opinion of us. Do we see the difference? Do we see the joy that comes with pursuing Christ? When we pursue greatness in whatever area it is, and and church, I've... I've got to die to this as well. I can't use preaching or Christianity as a means of pursuing greatness. If I do, I'm always a slave to what other people's opinions of me are. If I do, then I see other people competitively. And somebody says, well, he's a great preacher. And I think, well, what does that mean about me? I'm not a great preacher. We see others competitively. But when we pursue Christ, we see others compassionately. We look out for their needs and their interests. We look out for their feelings. We're sensitive to them, not trying to compete against them, but to serve them, to love them. In whatever area you operate, whether it's in school or at work or in your neighborhood or wherever it is that you operate, you will have this temptation to pursue greatness. And Jesus calls us to break out of that rat race, to break out of that dog-eat-dog world, to break out of that pecking order and to pursue him. Win by being defeated. Be first by being last. Be great by being a servant. Pursue Christ. And when you pursue Christ, you not only have Christ, but he will make you great. And in his opinion, wouldn't it be great to be satisfied with his opinion of you? Isn't this what Jesus is telling his followers? If you humbly pursue Jesus, if you are poor in spirit and you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you humbly pursue Jesus, then Jesus says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. If you see others compassion, good and faithful servant, the world always tells you, you're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not wealthy enough, you're not educated enough. And Jesus says, if you pursue me, you are great. If you are humble, you're great. If you serve others, you're great. You can have greatness, but you have to cease pursuing it, and you have to pursue Christ. And then it won't matter how smart you are, or how strong you are, or how beautiful you are, or how rich you are. It won't matter. What will matter is, are you pursuing Jesus? Again, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul was on that journey of selfish ambition and vain conceit. But when he met Jesus, he gave all of that up. And he said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He was content with that. That's what we're doing when we're baptized into Jesus, aren't we? We're saying, I am crucified with him. Deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. But it doesn't just happen at baptism. It happens the next day and the next day and the next day where daily we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus.
Pursue Jesus and you will find Jesus and you will find true greatness. If we can help you or pray for you or help you put Jesus on in baptism, if there's anything we can do for you this morning, we're here for you. Now's a great opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing.